How are we doing? Amen. Amen. Again, I'm grateful to be with you on a Thanksgiving Sunday, Thanksgiving weekend. Um, I'm also grateful to be with you as we close the book officially on our walk and journey through John. Any guesses as to how many sermons we've preached through this book so far? <laughs> we've preached a lot. Any guess how long we've been in the book? A long time. <laughs> we've preached over 50 messages um, as we've walked through John. And we have, um, and we have been walking through John for about close to almost a year and a half including some other sermon series that we would break from John to preach. But this has been a journey for us, um, a journey that I pray you've been edified and served as we've journeyed um, and as we've walked through it. Um, this last chapter is um, kind of random in, in some sense. It, it's, it's random in the sense that there's like kind of this narrative that's taking place and then it just veers off. You know, guys are fishing and then it goes from guys fishing to all of a sudden, this deep, 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 deep um, conversation between Jesus and one particular guy amongst the other guys that were fishing. And so I want, I want, to, I want to hone in on that conversation because that conversation is going to be very important. But before I hone in on that conversation, I want to just make a few observations about the fishing because it's, I, think, I think the fishing trip itself is interesting and worthy of us just paying attention to. In verse 4, it talks about the day was breaking and Jesus stood on the shore and, and yet the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. They've seen him, yet, but, but understand this is about 100 yards distance between where the disciples are on the boat to where Jesus is on the shore. So they see him, but they don't necessarily see him, if you, know, if, if, if you can catch my drift. And so they, 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 they hear him say to them, children, do you have any fish? And they say, no, we don't. And that's going to be important in just a second. And he says, cast a net on the right side of the boat and you will find some. And so they cast it and now they were not able to haul it in because of the quantity of the fish. Now notice, these men had been there practically all night and had caught nothing, according to verse 3 of this chapter. They'd been there all night, they caught nothing, and now... Jesus on the shore says, cast your net again, this time on the right-hand side. I'm sure they've casted their net on the right, on the left. I'm sure they've casted their net on the back of the boat, on the front of the boat. And yet he says at the end of the night, cast your net on the right-hand side. And when they cast it, all of a sudden now there is more fish than they can actually pull in. Now notice at what point the disciples realize that it is the Lord. Is that the point of power being on display? See, the risen Christ demonstrates in this moment power through his provision. In the moment, in the instant that they realize that there is power on display, even though they can't see him, they know that it's him. This account is a relapse of an earlier account in Luke chapter 5. The disciples were first meeting Jesus in Luke chapter 5. Well, at least some of the disciples were. And when they were first meeting Jesus, guess what they were doing? Fishing. These guys love the fish. They're fishermen. And so when they, when they first met Jesus, they were fishing. And when they were fishing, guess what happened on that day? 
They were there all day and they couldn't catch any fish. And so they were there all day. They couldn't catch any fish. And, and, and Jesus gets, gets on the boat and he says, hey, cast your net again. They say, what are you talking about? We've been fishing all day. Crazy guy. No, 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 no. Cast your net again. And they cast the net. And when they cast the net, all of a sudden, there is an abundance of fish that almost begins to break the net. All right? And this is what happens. Immediately, Peter says, one of the apostles, one of the disciples that was initially called, immediately, he says in Luke chapter 5, depart from me for I'm a sinful man, O Lord. Again, he recognizes that he is in the presence of power. He is in the presence of divinity. He's in the presence of the divine. But there is two opposite reactions between when he first meets Jesus to now witnessing the resurrected Christ. When Peter first met Jesus, he feared this kind of power, realizing that he was not worthy to be in the presence of this kind of power. But now his now this fear has been transferred or has been transformed through fellowship. Not at the sight of Jesus' power, he now, or rather now at the sight of Jesus' power, instead of him saying, get away from me because I'm not worthy to be in your presence. Now at the sight of Jesus' power, he literally jumps off the boat and swims 100 yards to get near him. Now, let's, ask, let's first ask the question, is Peter any more worthy today than he was the day we met him in Luke chapter 5? The answer is no. In fact, one could convincingly reason and make an argument that he was less worthy today on, on the surface, of course. Because it was, it was on this day that we, that we had just caught Peter having denied Jesus a few days ago three times in public. He had publicly denounced his Lord and Savior. So what has changed is not his worthiness, but how he views the Savior has changed. Initially, he saw himself as not worthy enough to be near him, but in this moment, he sees himself as not worthy enough to be without him. See, in Christ, Peter sees now only one with the power to provide, but not only provide, he also sees one and only one with the power to redeem, the power to cleanse, the power to make one whole. And so instead of saying, get away from me, I'm not worthy enough, he's saying, I need to get closer because I'm not worthy enough. See, one of the successful devices that Satan uses against you is to use your sin and your unworthiness as a means of pushing you further from God. You ever notice that when you fall off in your walk, and it can be all sorts of different areas, maybe, maybe, maybe you're not... Um, attending church like you want to. Maybe you've put aside your scripture reading like you used to. Maybe you're not praying like you ought to. Maybe you're not saying the right things at home. Maybe there's some areas of sin that has had you bound and, and, and you thought you were free from them and then they seem to have caught up with you. You know, the one thing that you find in all of those particular circumstances is that it's always easier to move farther away from God rather than draw near him. That the current flows away from God in those moments, right? 
It just feels easy to just continue to move further and further and further away. But you know something? Thirsty people don't run from water. Thirsty people run to water. They run towards the water because they realize that the answer to their plight is not more thirst. It's the quenching of their thirst. So for you this morning, are you spiritually famished? Are you spiritually weak? Are you spiritually depleted? Maybe some of you in this room, the, 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 you, maybe you just limp into this room this morning because it was all that you could do was just to spiritually limp your way into the presence of God. Let me share with you, family, that the most important thing that you could, that you could have done this week is to limp into the house of God, to hear from the word of God in order to be restored by the spirit of God as you look to the son of God from whence cometh your help. He is the water that quenches your thirst. You don't run, you don't have to run from him. His arms are open, ready for you to run to him. But we also notice that in verse 9, they, they got out on land, so they bring the boat 100 yards. Peter, of course, is not included because he jumps off the boat and goes swimming, right? And so he leaves these guys with all this fish to try to drag back, but they, but they eventually get the boat and the fish back to shore. And when they get there, it's my kind of Jesus, they see a charcoal fire in place. No gas grill, that's right. That's charcoal. Well, they probably don't have gas grill then. But still, if Jesus was here right now, he would use charcoal. He would definitely not use gas. With fish laid out on it. There's charcoal and there's fish laid out on the grill. There's bread. And Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish that you have just caught. Simon Peter went aboard and hauled the net ashore full of large fish, 153 of them. And although there were so many, the net was not torn. And Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. And now none of the disciples dared ask him, who are you? They knew it was the Lord. Jesus came and took the bread and gave it to them and so with the fish. This was the third time that Jesus had revealed to the disciples. He had revealed himself to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. So the risen Christ calls us now to greatness through lowliness. These are some of the, what what you notice about some of the things, some of the observations that we're making is that they have not changed even though Jesus has. He has moved into, he has moved into a glorified state and yet who he is is still the same. What he represents is still the same. Greatness through lowliness. See, in the moments following his resurrection, it would have been reasonable for us to expect Jesus to be most apt to taking a posture of being served. He just came back from the grave, all power in his head. He's conquered death, victorious over it. He says in Matthew 28, Matthew's gospel, chapter 28, that I have all authority now under heaven and earth. You would think that now the way he's going to operate is Now you, all right, go get that piece of fish for me. You go get the bread. You, where's the charcoal? Right? A moment of undisputed power, undisputed lordship, uncontested authority amongst his followers, and yet we see Jesus moving in an entirely different direction than one would expect him to. Instead, he is still seeking to serve. 
even in his resurrected body. These are in no way new lessons for us. As I mentioned earlier, these are old lessons that Jesus has been teaching ever since he came to earth. Matthew 28, in Matthew chapter 20, Jesus says, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. It shall not be among, or shall not be so among you, but whoever would be great among you must be your servant. Verse 27 says, and whoever would be first among you must be your slave, even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Even in his resurrection posture, his commitment to leading through service remains the same. Our world, this world that we live in, this age that we live in, loves to to look to um, reflect leadership through dominance. When we watch our TVs, when we watch our movies, we are left with the impression that the more power one has, the more everyone around them serves them and the less that they serve others. That's the way we've been conditioned and the way we've been taught. But Jesus, even in the midst of resurrected glory, is looking after the needs of men who have been up all night trying to catch fish. How should that shape your leadership? How should that shape the fathers that are seeking to lead their homes well? Husbands that are seeking to lead their homes well. What what should that tell you about your leadership? How should that shape the supervisors in the room that have staff that you're leading? Maybe, Maybe you're not a supervisor formally on your job, but maybe you're a leader informally in other ways. Maybe you lead a volunteer group. Maybe you lead a project. Maybe you lead a team. How should that shape your leadership? Parents in the room, how should it shape the way you parent your children? Christian leadership is best modeled in how we are serving others, not in how others are serving us. Here we have the resurrected Savior with all glory and all power, and yet he is fixing a meal for his weary disciples. If the God with all power in his hands can serve, how can we not? No matter what position God has given us. Amen. In verse 15, it says, when they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, feed my lambs. Him a second time, Simon, son of John, you love me. He said to him, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And he said to him, Tend my sheep. He said to him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, Do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. And Jesus said to him, Feed my sheep. And so the text moves again quickly from a story about the disciples and a fishing. Fishing trip to the story about a disciple, Peter. The Peter from the earliest days of Jesus' ministry was always the most outspoken. He was always the boldest. He was always the riskiest. He was always the one willing to do what none of the others would do and say what none of the others would say. In the 16th chapter of the Gospel of Matthew, when Jesus was asked, or when, G- when Jesus asked the disciples, who did they believe he was? 
It was Peter who first belted out, thou art the Christ, the son of the living God. In the 22nd chapter of Matthew, it was Peter who declared, I will never leave the side of you. I will, I will die before I leave you. It was Peter four chapters later in Matthew chapter 26 when they came to arrest Jesus. Whipped out his shanking. Chopped the man's ear off. Peter was gangster, right? It was rough, rough dude, man. Rough dude. So here's Peter, always the most outspoken, always the boldest. Peter was a loyal follower of Christ, and yet what Peter is most known for is that one terrible night when all of his fears and all of his doubts and all of his commitment to self-preservation collided into three loud denials of his Lord and Savior. Three is an interesting number. See, you, you, you do something three times on a single evening and it becomes hard to claim it as an accident. It becomes harder to claim it as a lapse in judgment, a mistake. It's most likely considered to be deliberate at that point, right? I mean, you can slap me once and say you didn't mean to, right? If you slap me three times, we're going to have problems. Something has transpired here, and I don't believe that this is just an accident. And so, and so with three denials, there appears to be sort of a, sort of a, 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 a finality to this, that there is no turning back for Peter. He has made his decision to go his own way and to renounce his Savior. And this makes this moment in our text even more powerful because Jesus, after eating breakfast, the risen Christ moves to, instead, and from demonstrating humility through his leadership, he moves now to showing grace through his restoration. Or through restoration. He eats breakfast and he moves to this conversation with Peter. And he says, do you love me? Looks at Peter. Says, do you love me? Peter says, of course. You know I love you. And he says, well, feed my sheep. And he says, do you love me? He says, what is this about? Of course I love you. And he says, feed my lambs. Do you, do you love me? says, you know all things, Lord. What is it that you need? What is it that you need to hear from me? Feed my sheep. Feed my lambs. Tend my sheep. Feed my sheep. Now, there's debate over whether or not Jesus, when you look at the Greek, he actually uses two different terms to express love. He uses the term phileo. And he uses the term agape. And, and there's been talk that phileo is more of an emotionally geared love, and agape is more of the unconditional love, the higher kind of love. And the problem with that is that sometimes when you look at the New Testament, you see that agape is sometimes used to maybe refer to a love that is not necessarily unconditional, and then phileo is used in a higher sense. And so it's interchanged sometimes. And John seems to be interchanging terms anyway. He's interchanging the Greek with sheep and lamb. He's interchanging Fish, there's multiple terms used for fish in his text. 
So it doesn't seem to be the point that, that as a matter of fact, Peter says, he, he goes as far as saying himself, Lord, you know everything. Or rather, Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, do you love me? That's what John wrote. In other words, the point is not that he's asking them different types of love. The point is that he's asking them multiple times, do you love me? And Peter seems frustrated at this point, and he says, Lord, you know the everything. You know that I love you. Restoration is being established. Three times Peter denied Jesus. Three times now Peter is questioned about his love for Jesus. Three times Peter has reassigned his mission. Are you tracking with that? He is not only questioned about his love, but he has reassigned his mission. A mission that he probably thought he never would be given again. Peter thought he probably thought he was on the outside from henceforward. He probably swam to that shore to himself, it'll be just good enough if he just accepts me back. Certainly he won't use me. Are you tracking? Certainly he won't do anything with me. If I could just hang on to his coattails, that'll be good enough. You ever felt like that? Ever felt like you've, you've, you've denied his grace on so many occasions that it would be good enough just to be in his presence again, much less to be used by him? It's not even on your radar to be used by him. But don't undersell his grace. Don't undersell his mercy. The mistake we make in thinking about our sin is underselling the one who has the power to forgive it. Christ is committed to the backslider. He's committed to the one who falls away. He's committed to the one who has sinned and transgressed his ways multiple times. He calls them back over and over again. He beckons them to the shores over and over and over again. He woos them over and over and over again. He woos me. He woos you. That's how deep the Father's love, that's how deep the Son's love is towards us. But he doesn't just woo us and leave us where we were, does he? You look at the text and you hear that the risen Christ is not just calling um, Peter back through grace to restoration, but he is calling him to love Christ through self-denial. You hear the text, you hear, he says, do you love me? And he says, yes, I love you. Feed my sheep. He's challenged as he's restored. You, you, you understand that? Are you tracking with that? Peter is expected to demonstrate his love to Jesus by fulfilling the calling God has given him. This brings about quite a heavy truth that we all need to pay attention to, and it is this. We don't demonstrate our love for Christ by pursuing our passions. We demonstrate our love for Jesus by pursuing his passions for us. Most of us, most of us in this culture, in this, in this, 
in this day and age think that we can kind of hang our hats on the Christian faith and then just kind of do whatever it is that we want to do. And so we feel like, well, I love Jesus, and Jesus loves me, and I'm just going to do my own thing. But, but here you hear Jesus asking Peter, do you love me? And every time he responds, yes, he gives him mission. Are you tracking with that? In other words, he's not just leaving Peter to just kind of flutter around in his own, in his own passions. He is directing Peter's love and focusing Peter's love. Love and worship of the Savior is best demonstrated through our submission to the Savior and through our submission to his will for our lives. Jesus, after restoring Peter for the work of ministry, he now immediately challenges Peter by describing in clear terms what what it's going to cost him to walk in this ministry. So he restores him to ministry, right? Feed my sheep, feed my lambs, tend to my sheep. And then after he does that, he begins to describe what it's going to cost. Verse 18, truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. This he said to show by what kind of death he was to glorify God. Now, what's happening here? Christ is giving Peter a glimpse into the future. Most likely by the time that John writes this gospel, Peter has already gone on to be with the Lord. He's already died. He's already been martyred, killed, murdered for his faith. So at this point, John is most likely bringing special attention to what Jesus told Peter to show us Jesus' ability to look into the future. Peter will live a life feeding the flock of God as Jesus has requested of him. He will live that life, but his life will not end peacefully. It will end in persecution. It will end in martyrdom. It will end in murder for the faith that he holds dear. Now, after he finds this out, that this will be the end of his life, of, uh, that this will be the end to a life of feeding and tending to the sheep and rendering faithful service to the Lord, Jesus follows up that command, or Jesus follows up that, that peek into the future with a command. Follow me. Follow me. This is the way your life is going to end. You're going to live faithful. You're going to tend to the sheep. You're going to feed the sheep. But it's going to be a violent end to your life. Now follow me. Now follow me. Are you, are you, are you hearing that? See, this end that Jesus declares to Peter is not punishment. I need you to understand that. This is not punishment for, G, for Peter denying Jesus. This is the calling. Of Peter's life. As in fact, in fact, it's the calling that Peter feared, which is the reason why he denied him, right? He knew that standing for Christ could ultimately cost him his life, which is why he denied him initially in the first place. And now it's coming back full circle. Part of the restoration is to face the same challenges. Die to yourself. Follow me all the way to the end. His restoration was never meant to be a sign that he would no longer have trials. His restoration was meant as a reminder that in those moments where we are prone to fail, there's still mercy in Christ. 
part of Paul's, uh, one, 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 of, one of our you know, founding fathers in the faith, the Apostle Paul. When he goes, he was going into city to, from city to city in Acts. And when he went from city to city in Acts, the Bible says one of his tools of discipleship was teaching this lesson to the people that were, he, were, he was discipling. Acts chapter 14, verse 21 and 22, it says, When they had preached the gospel to the city and had made many disciples, they returned to Lystra and to Iconium and to Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith, and saying that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. That was part of his discipleship. Are you tracking? That was part of the way he trained followers of Jesus, was to expect tribulation. Jesus himself set forth the same expectations when he said in the Gospels, is the teacher or is the student greater than the teacher? If the teacher receives persecution, how much more so will the students? And it boils all back down to the one question, do you love me? The question now is given a little bit more depth. Do you love me enough to trust me no matter where that trust may lead you? Do you love me enough to trust me no matter where that trust may take you? And to answer yes is is to say that I'm following Jesus no matter where following him may take me. To answer yes is to say I am living in the calling that God has placed on my life and for my life, even if that calling leads me to a persecuted end. What this account is teaching us is that life, a life in Christ is about way more than living a life with plenty and living a life with comfort. And loving him is about far more than using his name to get whatever we want in this life. He says, you love me. Peter responds, yes. He says, well, follow me all the way to the end, even if that end is your death. Folks, that is strong. And so with that being as strong as it is, we can expect Peter to respond the way someone would naturally respond. Christ calls him to put all his chips on the table. To push them all to the, t- push them all to the middle of the table, Right? Be all in is what he's calling them to. Be all in. Peter's response to Christ should come as no surprise. Verse 20, Peter turned and saw the disciple whom Jesus loved following them and the one who also had leaned back against him during the supper and had said, Lord, who is it that is going to betray you? And when Peter saw him, he said to Jesus, Lord, what about this man? And Jesus said to him, if it is my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? You follow me. So the saying spread among the brothers that this disciple was not to die, yet Jesus did not say to him that he was not to die. But if it is my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? So let me translate Peter's words for us in a simplistic 21st century sort of way. So tell us how John is going to die. That's That's what Peter said. Jesus described Peter's death and how he was going to die. And so Peter said, what about him? How's he going to die? Right? Since we're in the prophetic mood today, right? 
feeling like sharing, sharing all our future destinations, our future ends. You know, what, what about him? How, how, how's he going to end up? And, and, and Jesus responds back to Peter. Do you hear what he says? If I want him to be here until I come back, what is that to you? My calling for you and my calling for him are two totally different things. That is tough to read. Because isn't that one of the fundamental questions behind some of our frustrations in the Christian life? When we're experiencing hardship, we often wonder, if I'm living for you and she's living for you, then why is it that I'm going through this, right? Or I have to experience this and she don't have to experience this. Isn't that the fundamental question oftentimes when we're walking with Jesus? Well, what about him? What's going to happen to him? Is there any sickness in his life down the road? Because I seem to be, I seem to be experiencing a good bit of it. Is there, is there any, you know, child hardships that he's going to experience with his kids? Because my kids are bad as all get out, right? So, so is there anything going to happen to him? Because I, I, I'm walking with you too, Lord. Isn't that the fundamental question behind why many people refuse to walk with Jesus in this Christian life? What do people oftentimes want to know? Why do people, why do good people suffer? I don't want, I don't want to walk with this God and, and, and it seems like good people are suffering for no reason. See, folks, the road to obedience is not always a lighted path. The road to obedience is not always a lighted path. Sometimes we obey without seeing the fruit of where our obedience is taking us. Sometimes the immediate fruit is not a good indicator for why we obey. Sometimes you do all the right things and end up with all the wrong results. And you're like, what in the world is going on? Why am I doing this? But you don't continue to travel the road because the path is always lit. You continue to travel the road because you know that the final destination on the road is sure. Are you tracking with that? See, Jesus, when he speaks to Peter and he tells Peter to follow him, even as he is describing how he's going to die, why do you think Peter still follows? He once told Jesus when Jesus um, looked to the disciples and said, after everybody had left, he said, hey, are you going to leave too? And Peter responded and said, where else will we go? You have the words of life. In you is eternal life. In you is fullness of joy. In you is peace. In you. Where else will we go? Yeah, there, there may be some bumps along the way, but where we're going, the end that we shall reach will surpass all the headaches that preceded it. And so we continue to go. Joni Erickson Tata is a name that I mentioned before. She just, she oozes godliness out of her body, out of her pores. She's, she was a quad, she is quadriplegic, and she has been for 51 years, got paralyzed as a young adult in a diving accident and has forever since been paralyzed. 
Eight years ago, she successfully battled cancer, conquered it by God's grace. But this past week, uh, she got news that it had come back. And so I'm reading her words in response to this most recent diagnosis a week ago. She said, when I received the unexpected news of cancer from my oncological surgeon, I relaxed and smiled, knowing that my sovereign God loves me dearly and holds me tightly in his hands. Listen, what good is it if we only trust the Lord when we understand his ways? That only guarantees a life filled with doubt. She closed that statement this week by saying, Jesus is ecstasy beyond compare. And if new hardships draw, draw us closer to him, I'm more than content with those hardships. She often says that God allows what he hates to accomplish what he loves. That he allows what he hates to accomplish what he loves. And so in order to truly follow Christ, folks, we must trust Christ. Obedience can't be sustained in Christ without trust because there's going to be some times in this journey where you're going to be like, I don't know what he's doing. I do not know what he is doing right now with my life. And if you are basing your obedience solely off your ability to understand him, you will stop obeying. Obedience has to be connected to trusting a sovereign and an eternal and an all-wise God that knows way more than we ever could think about knowing. And that is working far more things in the grand scheme of eternity that we could ever fathom about thinking or thinking about or working through. Jesus, as he closes this book, or as John closes this book, he gives us lessons about humility how to walk in it. He gives us lessons about the power of God and that power not just to provide but to redeem and to save and how we should draw near to him versus flee from him. He gives us lessons about God's grace and how matchless that grace is and how he forgives and forgives and forgives. But John leaves us with a challenge And that challenge is to follow through the ups, through the downs, through the highs, through the lows, through the peaks, through the valleys, to follow, to follow. Why? Because God loves you more than you'll ever know. And because he has prepared an end that is more joyful than you can ever dream of. So follow, amen? Amen. Would you pray with me? Lord, we love you and thank you. And we ask that you would continue to help us, Lord God, as we seek to obey you, seek to follow you. We thank you for your grace. We thank you for your example. We thank you for your love. Help us love you, Lord God, because you first loved us. These things we ask and we pray in your son Christ's name. Amen.